funeral tonight, we ask that your Holy Spirit would again illuminate our hearts to who you are and how you have operated in the past through history, and that you would give us insight as we seek to know you better in an age in which uh, we have great opposition, an age in which your word is brought into great ridicule and your character is defamed by that ridicule. We ask that you would um, illuminate our hearts to the great things that you have put for us in your word. And it's a storehouse and a treasure. And we ask tonight that you would um, show us the riches in it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Just a quick review again. Um, I always like to review because I always have to do it myself. Um, this uh, course that we're doing here is, is, remember, is part of a larger thing. And the larger thing, pictures, um, and looking at the Bible as an entire framework that addresses every area of life. Uh, we've said that we are going to stress three parts. We're going to combine elements that usually aren't combined in, in a class, in a Bible class. We're going to deal with biblical events. We're going to deal with the uh, biblical events as actual historical uh, events, things that occurred and are just as real as any other historical event that you could uh, read about in history. We're going to deal with the revealed truths that God has given through those events. And we're going to see how it is a coherent message that God has given man throughout Scripture, throughout history. And we want to look at that coherence that he is an organized thinker and he speaks in an organized way. And we dealt a little bit last week with the apologetic strategy by way of introduction, trying to clarify a little bit, and it'll, it'll become clear as we work through this, uh, what we mean when we say we are uh, approaching the Scripture through presuppositions. In other words, we begin up front with the authority of Scripture. We're not pretending we're coming from some neutral ground and then trying to reason our way across that neutral ground to God. We're, uh, we're uh, confessing right up front where our authority lies. And we, in this, this series of notes that we are handing out incrementally, um, this is more of chapter 1 that you got tonight. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 of those, uh, those uh, notes are going to deal with the first of these four events in Scripture. Uh, basically, this, this fall, we're only going to really deal with the doctrine of creation or the event of creation and the doctrines that are associated with this and the struggles that come out of this first part of the Scriptures. So, that's, a, that's an introduction, and I think if you'll look at your uh, handouts from last week, there's a quotation on the introduction of page two of that introduction from A.W. Tozer. And Tozer was a great uh, preacher in Chicago for many years and uh, written a number of devotional books. In fact, one of the highly recommended books by Dr. Tozer uh, is The Knowledge of the Holy, which is a little, little thing he did, uh, which is excellent, excellent text on the attributes of God. A very good devotional approach to the attributes of God. But Tozer was more than a devotional writer. He's also a theologian. And... In the beginning of that book, Tozer makes the point that every time the church in its 2,000-year history, every time the church has gotten screwed up, it's always gotten screwed up over the same problem. It's got a wrong answer to the question, who is God? What is God like? And every time we get a wrong answer to that question, we're in deep spiritual trouble. And it just catapults down through uh, area after area. So this is why I cited uh, Tozer's statement when he says there, essentially salvation is the restoration of a right relation between man and his creator, a bringing back to normal of the creator-creature relation. God was our original habitat, and our hearts cannot but feel at home when they enter again that ancient and beautiful abode. Marvelous way of putting it. And, and that, in a nutshell, is what we're talking about. So while we go and pursue different things here and uh, go off into details, 
uh, be assured uh, it's not a fox trace here. The details that I've put in the notes and we're going to talk about are things that have come up in my experience and the experience of Christians again and again and again. So I decided let's meet it head on, uh, particularly young people who are in educational, uh, in the educational part of their lives and development. Uh, you're going to run into this. I can assure you you're going to run into this. You're going to run into a lot more than what we cover, but I think I have at least covered the basic structure of the issues that you will one day, one day run into if you haven't already. Um, let's go into the text of the scripture tonight and let's turn all the way to the last uh, book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I want to emphasize by several passages there how crucial the event of creation is for defining who and what God is. If we're wrong here, everything else falls out of kilter. And in the book of Revelation chapter 4, it's that passage that we've sung and, and cited repeatedly, actually, here, the chapel. It's looking in the future, and the Apostle John has this vision of what happens in the throne of God, the very throne of God. In the presence of God, he is praised. And in chapter 4, verse 11, look at the content of that praise. Worthy art thou, O Lord... Our, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. See the emphasis? Now this is at the end of history. And isn't it remarkable that the content of the praise of God reverberates with the beginning of history? And that sets God off. That is why he is praised and not the archangels. That is why he is praised and not people because God and God alone is the one who created. And that is remembered forever and ever and ever through the halls of eternity that God created. It was a sacred act and it must always be remembered. It sets God apart. If you'll turn to the last part of the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, you'll see that when we get into Genesis, you'll see the... the um, meaning of, of why Revelation is structured this way, at the very end of the scriptures, it's like the Holy Spirit has closure. That is, he began the scriptures by telling us the story of God's creation. Now at the end of the scriptures, he closes off the Bible. He ends the Bible by referencing to the new creation. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and no longer is any sea. I saw the holy city, and so on. And he goes on, and he says in verse 4, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no more be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And so there, the marred first creation is removed. But notice, creation is important, and it's immediately succeeded by another universe. The Bible speaks of a new universe, an entire recreation. And that takes place at the end of history as we know it. In chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, filled with the same story and the same shapes and the same images of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Later, when we get into Genesis, you'll see there's a river that comes out of Eden and flows east and apparently came out of the then throne of God in the book of Genesis. And so the new heavens and the new universe are structured very similarly to the present universe. And he notices in verse 3, there's a careful reference, and there shall no longer be any curse. So it is an uncursed and really uncursable universe. So it's remarkable that the Bible has this symmetry to it. And that's something that we want to again and again come back to as Christians. God is a coherent thinker. And one of the proofs, if you want to call it that, one of the evidences of the, of the inspiration of the Bible is its coherence. As you get into it and you study it more, you begin to see this levels of coherence throughout the text. And that is, is an evidence of God's revelatory work. Okay, 
We, we said, if you turn in your handout for today, <clears throat> we mentioned the importance of origins. And I want to go over that and make sure we understand some of those points. And we'll go through some texts that were in that exercise that um, I, I gave you. Um, what I'm trying to do here in this, this part is to point out, if you don't know already, that the subject of origins is a very sensitive subject. Uh, I don't know whether you've had the experience or not, but I'm sure you must have if you've been a Christian more than a couple of days. Creation is a very volatile topic to talk about. It's a very sensitive topic to talk about, and we must observe this. Uh, it may bother us, but I think we need to think about why is it so sensitive? Why is creation a sensitive topic? Why do people get upset by this thing? And the answer, of course, is that the reason people get upset is because it underscores that they're very getting upset is proof, is an evidence of the fact that they're dealing with something that goes to the very root of their being. People don't get upset over trivial things. People get upset that way when you've pressed a hot button with them. So they're emotionally committed to a, to a view of origins. Everyone basically is, is emotionally and deeply committed to a view of origins. And this is why it's a hot topic. This is why it gets everybody agitated. I mean, before we're through with Genesis, much longer as we go through here, uh, we're going to have geologists agitated, astronomers agitated, physicists agitated, biologists agitated, the feminists are agitated. I mean, there's not too many people left unagitated by the time you get to chapter 3 of Genesis. It literally goes against the grain of every area of thought. And because it does, I'm just warning you up front that as we go down this road through Genesis and we begin to look out of, of, of what people say, people react to this, and, and what the world thinks, uh, we're in for some, some rough times. The, the key that I, I've put in the text in, in chapter 1 is that whenever you discuss origins, you're really discussing person's ultimate belief. And that ultimate belief is wrapped in parcel with their view of God. Show me a person's view of origins, and I will show you the person's view of God. They are that closely related. And this is why, as we go through this, we want to remember that origins, Genesis starts with origins. It starts, the Holy Spirit organized it this way because he's addressing the heart of men. And origins is the starting point of all. Now, as I went into the importance of origins for meaning and so on, and some of this, you might, some of you might have, have um, wondered why do I go through all of this business about language? Because it controls everything else. That's why. Let me illustrate. You cannot talk about any subject. I don't care what the subject is. Pick it. Any subject in your mind right now. Pick any subject you want to. You cannot discuss that subject, talk about it, think about it, or act on the basis of your thoughts about it unless you have already established basically a view of the universe, a view of yourself, a view of truth, and a view of language. You can't start without already presupposing things. And it goes for the Christian and the non-Christian. So I want to explore that some more. And that's why we want to go with this issue of language. And I said in the text that if you want to classify something, think of a little child learning. And, of course, one of the first things little babies learn when they begin to talk, they learn, besides uh, all kinds of odd sounds and how to make sounds into something, um, they learn nouns. And a child will have this thing, he'll, he'll start learning nouns. And I don't know whether uh, those of you who have had children probably can appreciate this, but uh, one of the most fascinating things about a child is watching them learn language. 
Dr. Mortimer Adler, who was the, for years, one of the editors of Encyclopedia Britannica, made this statement. He said, do you realize that every one of us has performed the greatest intellectual act we will ever perform for the rest of our life by the time we're six years old? And what did he mean? He meant that from some way still unknown, a child learns language without having known a previous language. From that point on, we learn language, but it's always because we've known another language and we're moving from one language to another. But that's not true for a little child. A little child sits there and somehow is able to learn language. I don't know whether you've thought about how miraculous that is. That is an amazing thing that is going on there. And as we get deeper into Genesis and creation, I hope that this, this wonder of a little child learning will become a very motivational thing for you if you're as a parent. What a child is doing is, as made in the image of God, he has been pre-programmed for his environment. And he goes and he starts to learn, say, a noun, which classifies some subject. Now, let's see, how would a child learn a noun? He has to learn that by... Let me get this down here a little bit. Yeah, I'll just write it down here. He has to learn something, uh, that, that word, that noun stands for something, by developing an idea of a class. And so he has certain objects that he fits in that class. Maybe a dog. I use the illustration of a dog. But isn't it interesting that a child has to learn that a terrier and a collie and a Great Dane are all dogs. And yet, you could have an animal the same size in there. A sheep, throw in some other imaginative animals, and the child is going to, without too much difficulty, learn that there are a set of things called dogs, and sheep aren't one of them. Cats aren't one of them. There's a category there. And what we're getting at is, there's a from the very start, there's built into all of us a need to classify. We classify again and again, and we can't talk without classifying. And that means, what's so important about this, is there is one of the preconditions for knowledge, that the universe around us is classifiable. Imagine, for example, if today the little child is sitting here learning and he's just learned that there's a, there's a terrier and there's a cocker spaniel and there's a collie and, and, and the cat, that, that's not a dog, and that sheep, that's not a dog. And the kid has got it all taken up today. You know, he knows what G D-O-G means. And then, oh, during the night, the animals transmute their forms. And what happens to the learning process? Obviously, it stops in confusion. You can't have knowledge, you can't even speak, unless you can classify. And classification presupposes that the universe and the world is classifiable. So, how do we, how do we, how do we um, connect this with Scripture? It implies something. It implies that to know anything, I have to know that there's a stability in the real world outside of me that I can genuinely learn about. Now, let's turn in the text of the Bible where this happens. And we can watch it up close. Let's open to Genesis. And we're going to get into this in a little deeper way later, but what I'm also building here, for those of you who are studying in English literature, uh, please notice that the Bible has a philosophy of language. It does not permit any view of language. The Bible has a very restrictive idea of what language is all about, and that's what we're looking at right now. Genesis 1, chapter, uh, ch chapter 5, verse f uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, the creation story. As God creates the universe, he begins to name. Notice, in verse 3, God said, let there be light. God saw the light was good, etc., etc. God was moving on the surface of the waters. And he does all this. And then, in verse 5, is the first naming in history. What was the first thing ever named? Light. Who named it? God did. 
In other words, the universe from the very start was structured to be describable by language. And we'll observe more carefully this later, but verse 5, you notice he's God called. Look verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven. In chapter 1, verse 10, God called the dry land earth. And you see, God is naming. Now, if you were to study this chapter carefully and observe, you would see he stops naming. He only starts naming a few things. Then, when it's all over, chapter 2, verse 19, if you come over here for a moment, you'll notice the assignment that he gave man. And notice the way he gave man the assignment. He said in verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast in the field, so forth, and, whatever, and he brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. So now the man is, is given this task of naming. Here's, here's the biblical view of language. First, you have God beginning the language at some point in time. He initializes the language. You want to use a computer term. He is initializing language by beginning to name. It's as though he comes to Adam and he says, Adam, I did this, I did this. That is that, that is that, that is that. And he, he names a few things. Then he says to Adam, and now, fella, the rest is up to you. You, you finish what I started. I got you started. Here's the name of the game. Now I want you to learn about me by learning about what I've made. You learn about a craftsman from the craft that the craftsman crafts. And we learn about God through his creation. Through his word, yes, but through his creation. So, Adam is given an assignment to begin to name. Now, that's the lofty view of language in Scripture. Why do I keep going back to language? Because when you are getting into a conflict with a non-Christian, the non-Christian likes to think that he can sit in his house of language and fire at you. Now, what I'm going to show you is a little tool to handle things when it gets that way. What we're going to show you is that he can't sit impermeable in his house of language because he has got to justify the language that he's using to attack scripture with. And we come and we say the scripture gives you a view of language and if you don't accept the scripture, you can't inherit that view of language and that makes you in trouble. So it puts the shoe on the other foot. We'll develop that later. But right for now, just understand that language and thinking need something to work with. And one of the things that language needs to work with is stability of categories and classifications. How do we know that God does this? If you turn to Romans chapter 1, in that passage where Paul deals with the pagan environment, and he's trying to teach the pagans to learn to think about their environment, he says in chapter 1, verse 20, he says, certain things of God since the creation of the world are seen. He says invisible attributes. And one of the invisible attributes is called in the text his eternal power. Now, if you were to do a word study on that eternal power, it's more an emphasis on ever-present, ever-working power. We would say, translated today, a constantly sustaining power. Now, notice what he says about that. He says that his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been, how seen? Clearly seen. Notice the word, the adverb there. Clearly seen. Being understood so they are without excuse. So, Every man and woman and child is in contact with God from the time of the beginning of their existence. And what we're saying here tonight is one of the places every man and woman come into contact with God's structure is every time they speak a word. Every time they think. Because language presupposes an orderly environment. Now, the second thing that we wanted to cover in that section on the importance of origins for meaning is that how do you learn words after you start to classify them? Suppose you have this word out here. We'll call it the dog word again. We all know that we don't learn that abstractly. We all know that there's connotations to that. There's something a dog bit me. Something happened. In other words, you have an experience that defines the meaning of that word. 
there's an emotive content to it. There's context to it. Dog means something in a context. You can see that if you ask, if you, if you use a word maybe in the house and the little child who's learning language comes up to you and says, uh, Mommy, what does mean? And then you figure out, well, maybe he's asking what does uh, some abstract thing he's heard you say, the word, and so on. He says, what does that mean? And you, you get in the position where you can't really tell a kid what it means because he has no experience of it. And so you can really spend five, ten minutes in a big discussion about what this word means. And after the five, ten minutes is through, the kid still doesn't know what it means because he doesn't have any context. He has no place to put it in his head. There's no way to organize it. So the second thing that we have to have to make things work in language is context. How do you define a word in the dictionary? You have to define it with other words. So, meaning comes from context. That's why when we read scripture, we have to be so careful that we always interpret scripture in context. But that's not just true of scripture, it's true all over. So the second element that we have to have is the stability of these classifications, and the second thing is we have to have a context. Now, again, this is really, this process of a six-year-old learning language, or the five-year-old, a four-year-old, three-year-old, this is how they're coming into contact with God. All during this language learning process, they're profoundly coming into contact with God. Let's turn over in the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes. I gave a reference in the notes to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll come back again and again to this because it's a central passage. And the reason why it's so important is that it was written as part of a corpus of literature called the wisdom literature in the Bible. Solomon wrote this. And Ecclesiastes, if we had the time, it's a fascinating book to read through because Solomon tried every false pathway you could think of uh, and he's done it. Solomon has done about everything that any person can do. He had a lot of wealth so he could afford to do experiments and basically he came up with a conclusion that the world doesn't satisfy. Only a relationship with God satisfies. Now, part of his explanation of this is in chapter 3, verse 11. This is a key passage in the Bible. Not many people know of this passage. But something is asserted in this passage that is a puzzle. It's a powerful puzzle. Notice what it says. God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Whose heart? Men's heart. What has God set there? Not eternal life, that's knowing Christ. But he has set eternity in their heart. There is a sense in every human being, whether the person is an atheist or a Christian, there is a sense of eternity. Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that God has placed his image in our hearts. And if you want to think in terms of context, here's what happens. Say, go back to the dog idea. Okay, the dog, you have a, a circle of context around him. And then around him, you have the idea of human society in which the dogs are used. And then you have the context of history in which human society lives. And you have this expanding ever-increasing circles of ever-widening context until you get out to, as far as you can think, the meaning of history and the origin of history. And it's the drive, that verse 11, which says he has put eternity in their heart, that is something, a passion, that he puts in our hearts that we want a foundation for our lives. And so we keep on pushing outward, pushing outward, pushing for ever and ever greater circles of contexts until we can get meaning for our life. Because someday, in a moment of depression, you will have the experience, sometimes, and come in, and it can come in as a cold chill. You, you know, if you want an exercise to do this, read some of the 20th century literature that our young people have to read in, in, in literature classes. It always amazes me that we always start literature classes with 20th century writings. It's backwards. What we should be doing is starting literature classes back in the days when there was a high and lofty view of language, moving forward from that time into the 20th century when people could care less and have given up all hope for meaning and they write literature that's profoundly despairing. Profoundly despairing. Now, 
What's happened here is it's despairing because when they go to push the walls out to try to get meaning, nothing's there. And we call that, in philosophy circles, that really is ultimately broad-labeled existentialism. Well, we don't bother with the big questions anymore. We just sit there and we describe, we describe, we describe, hoping that after a while we write enough stories, write enough poetry, do enough here, do enough there, have enough experiences, somehow that's going to satisfy things. It won't. It won't because God has set eternity in hearts. And until we push the context out to eternity, we won't be satisfied. It's like we're a little marble rolling around this big box. You ever, you know, you pack a box and you go send it something, you fill it with that cotton candy or whatever the stuff, not cotton candy, but the popcorn stuff. And why do you do that? Because the box has to be filled to hold the stuff. Well, if you can think of that imagery, that's what happens in the human heart. When we begin to know things and learn things, we want it not to just jounce around in an empty box. But God has given us in our hearts a sense of eternity. That's how big our hearts are. Not that the hearts are eternal. The hearts are not infinite, but there's a sense of infinite. We are created to have fellowship with an infinite God, and we're not going to be satisfied until we have fellowship with Him. But notice what, in further in verse 11, see, this is the other side of the mystery. first part of the mystery is that God has put eternity in our heart, but then, look at what He says in the next clause. But yet... So man will not find out the work which God has done. That is something we're going to get into. It's called the, the, the uh, doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. And we're going to deal with that. It's a very important idea of Scripture, that God is ultimately incomprehensible. We didn't say we couldn't know Him in a personal way. But to fathom His being is an impossibility. And we'll say, we're going to actually come back and say why that's a great comfort. Because... Every idol that man makes, by definition, isn't incomprehensible. It's comprehensible. All idols are comprehensible because man made them. So the mark of the true God is that he is not comprehensible. He lies beyond the power of reason to encapture. All we know about God is what he chooses to show us. And if he does not choose to show us something, we do not know anything about God. That's why this book is so important. If God did not speak the scripture, we know nothing. And the modern theologian and the modern church has washed itself clean of an authoritative scripture and in so doing they've cut themselves off from ever comprehending God. Because God is incomprehensible. So what he has done is God has structured the universe to tease us into a relationship with him. To tease us into a relationship with him. On the one hand, he shows us his magnificence. And you can study tremendous things. In science and literature, you can study unfathomable things. And we should, because God told Adam to go out and name these. But the funny thing happens on the way. As we begin to get involved, we begin to see these, these glorious things. And we begin to probe beyond them and beyond them and beyond them. We finally realize that this goes on endlessly. It goes on forever and ever. Think of the physicists. First it was the atom. Then it was the electrons and the protons. Now it's subatomic particles. Now it's going to be the grand theory of the strong force and the weak force in, in the nucleus. And so we go on and on and on and on and it never stops. And yet, we have to come to know God. So you can't postpone knowing God now, saying, well, gee, in five more years, if I take enough courses, if I read enough books... If I increase the volume of my knowledge, I'm going to know God better. No. Because I can say, well then, that's five years from now. What are you going to do? I can say, at, at T plus five, this is this year, plus five, Y plus five, you're going to be here. You're going to have that much knowledge. I can say, well, can't you say the same thing at Y plus five? But there's so much more to know. So I need to read more books, I need to think further, and so forth and so forth and so on, and we can just perpetuate this argument forever. And there'll be never a resting place. There never will be a resting place. And that's what God is saying here in verse 11. He says, I have given you people a sense of my presence and my eternity, but I've also structured the universe in such a way that you will never, on your own, get it. Unless you come to me. And then you can only come to me 
as I have chosen to reveal myself. Now, people do not like that. This is an extremely offensive idea I just dropped. Extremely offensive. A real modern person, a modern pagan, just flies off the handle at this. I will not accept a universe in which I can't dictate the terms of knowing. And we'll see that why this insidiously creeps into every subject we learn, every part of our education, has subtly inbred in us this wrong idea that we dictate the terms of knowing. We do nothing of the sort. God says, I have made this. So you will not find, you are not lords of knowledge. I am the Lord of knowledge. And you learn as I show you. Period. Now, the, the idea that there's an authority external to the heart of man is the essence of what we're talking about in salvation and redemption. The essence of sin is that I will not accept an authority outside of me. I want to be the authority. And so we come, whether it's in math, science, literature, anything else, we come back to sin. And this may be new, to think of sin in these other contexts. All right, I want to move to the New Testament because in the exercises I asked you to look at Matthew 19. Under the importance of origins, Jesus talked about divorce. And I gave this passage because I wanted you to see how origins just comes into almost every discussion imaginable. Now, as you looked over this text, of Matthew 19, you know the Pharisees came and they had a big argument over, uh, about divorce. Now, we're not getting into marriage and divorce, so don't worry about it tonight. Um, I'm just looking at the logic of the way Jesus met the opposition. What was the way Jesus reasoned? I mean, can't we learn something of just sitting there and listening to Jesus? He talked. He had a discussion with people. Wouldn't it be neat to tape record some of those discussions? See, how did he handle these things? I mean, they asked him the same questions they ask us. How did he do it? All right, they come to him and they're just going to deal with the issue of, of marriage. So in verse 3, the Pharisees came and they started testing him. And we could comment on that, but we won't because we don't have time. And notice what he said. The Pharisees came, is it lawful to divorce his wife? And the word divorce his wife there harks back to the Mosaic Law. They're actually citing some of the Greek translations of the Hebrew words. So we know what they have on their mind when they come to Jesus is, what does the Old Testament say? They have, they've studied that Torah. They've gone through verse after verse after verse. And they know it cold. So now we're going to get this Jewish carpenter. We're going to nail him. Now, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't answer on the basis of an obscure Mosaic law code. Okay? All right, let's look at context again. What Jesus does to do with the context. Here's the discussion. And they set divorce inside the law, thinking in terms of the technicalities, much as today's lawyers. It's not whether you're guilty or innocent, it's whether we have a slick deal on this particular line of reasoning about laws of evidence on this particular issue in this particular court, blah, 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 blah. All technical questions that obscure the substantive questions. And so here the Pharisees are, and Jesus end-runs them. He doesn't... He does, and this is a lesson that I have to learn again and again. I don't know how many times the Lord has had to show this lesson to me, and I screw it up again and again. I still haven't learned how to do this as well as I would like to do. When we're trying to communicate the gospel, don't accept the agenda of the other side. It is so easy to do this because someone will ask you a question and you and you clutch and you want to put it on a good testimony for the Lord and so you're trying to think, how do I answer this and what's the best way to do this? And, and all the while, you just bought the question. See, what you did in your head was you accepted the question at face value and went ahead to start to answer that question. But what we should learn to do is say, wait a minute, is that the right question I should even be answering? 
I mean, it gets back to the old joke about how many times last week did you beat your wife? Now, how do you answer that without incriminating yourself? See, it's a loaded question. And we have to, before we go charging forward to answer something on the basis of Scripture, we better just stop, whoa, Lord, is this really the right question we ought to be answering? Please learn to do that. It will save you grief upon grief. And that is the same... It's not something abstract just for evangelism and apologetics. Ultimately, this is how we deal with temptation, isn't it? You ever notice how temptation is? Satan is slick. The way he did it in the garden, he always deflects us. You know, temptation wouldn't be a temptation if there wasn't some truth to it. And what he does, he gets us to look over here and meanwhile, he slipped it to us over here. And we just kind of march on, taking along the whole thing like Eve did in the garden, never noticing the fact that we just bought into the agenda uh, about two steps earlier. Now we're all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a ball of wax over here, wondering, how did I get here? Because we took a wrong turn over here. I will demonstrate that subsequently as we go through the Genesis text again and again. But here, what Jesus did with the Pharisees, he said, I'm not going to really accept you. I know what you lawyers are after. You're after techniques. Well, let me put it to you this way. You guys say that you believe in the Torah. Why don't you go back to the origin of the Torah? You have to. Because the document that you're citing, the Torah, in which you find the law, itself testifies to the God who created the universe. You can't have law in a lawless universe. Obviously. So, God goes back, or Jesus goes back, and he deals with origins. And so he says, get the big picture, guys. Verse 4. And I can't help throwing this in. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. If you have uh, one of the new study Bibles, you should see that verse 4 and verse 5 is sort of marked as a reference to the Old Testament. Now, we just had at least two students here in the chapel come to me in the last month because a teacher in the school had told them in a lecture that there are really two stories of creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and they conflict. It's the same old documentary hypothesis been around since Wellhausen in the 19th century. And so, they come out with this two-idea of creation view. We'll get to that. There's answers for it. Well, isn't it strange that verse 4 is a quote from one of the creation stories and verse 5 is a, is a reference from one of the other creation stories. Now, poor Jesus. He just didn't know that he should never have quoted from two conflicting stories to build a coherent doctrine. Not having the benefits of the modern PhD studies, Jesus didn't really understand that there is a conflict here between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so, quite carelessly, this, this man from Nazareth randomly quotes over here and he quotes over here and he builds a whole doctrine of marriage on it. Well, that's one of the proofs, by the way, that there isn't a conflict. This is, Jesus knew there wasn't a conflict. He was perfectly relaxed with the Scriptures, no problems. And he builds the whole doctrine of divorce out of it. What is he doing? In a nutshell, he goes back to origins to set the context. He enlarges the discussion away from the technicalities to the big picture. And we've got to do that. Because it's as you enlarge the discussion to the big picture that we get into the rooty stuff and the depth of what's going on. I mentioned last time, and part of the exercises was the question about Acts 14. What did Paul do there? All of you should have gotten that from last week. What we said basically was Paul had to chop off the pagan framework, and the only way he could do it was push the walls of the discussion out all the way back to origins. And then he wiped the slate clean so he could deal with the issue. In Acts 17, the whole thing is the same approach. In Acts 17, what does Paul do at Athens? He comes back, and by the way, we'll get into Acts 17 from time to time as we go through Genesis. But you notice he doesn't argue the case. Let's turn to Acts 17 a moment. Watch how Paul did that. Acts 17, one of the central passages in the New Testament about how evangelism worked on the mission field. 
And this was in the heart of the educational center of the ancient world. Paul said in verse 22 and 23 something that we would never have thought of. At least I would never have thought of this. Here you are. Imagine. You're in Athens. What is the Greek culture in Athens known for? I mean, what, what's the, the educational uh, prestigious feeling about Athens? I mean, who were the great guys that worked there in Athens centuries before, but they surely set up the Greek culture? Plato and Aristotle. And you had all these little sub-schools of philosophy there. And do you notice what Paul says? He starts out his little sermonette here in verse 22 and 23, and I'm sure it was not a sermonette. We just get a little sermonetized version. This is Reader's Digest version of what probably went, really went on. Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious. And you can just about hear him say, What? The Epicureans? The Epicureans were atheists of the time. They were basically believed in sensation, these folks. They had completely discarded the idea of a, of a religion in the sense that we're talking about. Paul? What do you mean we're religious? Why do you suppose Paul labeled the so-called secular philosophers as religious? Here's why. Because he was dealing with a point that they have profoundly religious beliefs about the universe around them. They go back to origins. What does origins do? Anytime you're talking about origins, you're showing your ultimate belief system, your ultimate presuppositions, and every person has them. So every person is religious. It always really gripes me when I hear this stuff about how we had to be religiously neutral. Well, how can you be religiously neutral? What they really mean is, you theist religious people, we're going to keep you off the boat. And the only people allowed on this trolley are the atheists or the naturalists. We don't bring God in here. But that doesn't make you less religious. It doesn't make you have no ultimate presuppositions. That's what Paul's going at. And so he goes on and so forth and so on. He says, you guys, you're agnostics. You worship an unknown God. You said so. And then he starts saying now, verse 24, he confronts them with creation. See, he did the same thing in Acts 14, does the same thing in Acts 17. God who made the world, all things in it. Bang! Boom! Right there. Does he start with Jesus and Gospel of Mark? No. He starts with creation. Why does he start with creation? Because he's got to get at the guts of ultimate presuppositions. What is it that defines your highest belief? All right, we want to spend our, our, our closing moments here in the last section of those notes um, because if you'll turn in them to a little paragraph that my wife says is difficult to understand in page four. Now, I want you to master this. I really do, and I'm going to go over it and over it and over it week after week until we all master it. Don't ever let people sell you on the idea that you can be neutral. It's one thing that we don't get out of this course or anything else. It's going to be this point. No one is ever neutral. It's an illusion. And here's why. You look at that full paragraph on page 4, begins religious neutrality theory. Now that's a little device. I am not a good writer. But I tell you what, when I first did this series, I had a PhD Christian lady who got all A's through her PhD in English literature. And the first time she... I thought she was going to run out of red pencils when she got through... Uh, but one thing she taught me was the power of setting up a sentence and using a little word here and there. And one of the devices that you can use right here, I use it right in the first subject and the first line in that paragraph on page four. Notice what I do. I brand their thing as a theory. A religious neutrality theory says... Now, what have I done when I've done that? What's happened? immediately when I call the other person's belief system a theory. Well, now all of a sudden we've isolated this thing and, it, and we, we pulled it out of the woodwork so it doesn't become some thing that everybody accepts. Now we all of a sudden, whoops, it's a theory. Woo! 
we've got to look at this. You see? So we don't accept it as a fact. We bring it out as a theory. Now, that's, what we, that's the way they do it to us all the time. Oh, you Christians, with your theory, oh, your Bible theory, your Bible beliefs. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to turn the language right around and say, and your beliefs, that you keep insisting on shoving down my throat all the time we talk. So, we want the... Two can play the game of language. Just be careful. You can do it graciously. You can be very gracious about it, but you don't compromise the truth. It's a battle for language. You can often lose the whole point of the discussion because you, you got sloppy. They stated something. You bought into it and went on. Never examined it. What we've got to learn is, let's not buy into the questions here. Hold it. Whoa. Cut. Are we doing right by even accepting that way of phrasing it? This is not, a, not arguing technicalities now. This is arguing substance. Now, I want to show you three truths in that paragraph on page four. Three truths about why you cannot be neutral. Now, nobody can answer this. This is, this is a proof that's been around for 20 years. It was, it was started by a guy who had gotten his doctorate at Harvard in theoretical math. He put forward this evidence and no one has ever been able to disprove this. Everybody kind of strikes around it or ignores it, but they never have disproven it. Now, those of you who have dealt with logic know that if you have a premise, let's call it P, if something is true, then something else is true. And we can diagram it like that. If P, then Q. Everybody knows this. If something is true, I guess you won't see it if it's not low. Okay? If P, then Q. If it is uh, a clear day outside, then it is not raining. And that's the implication. Now, there's a little sneaky thing that goes on here. You can reverse this, this logic, and write it this way. You put that little wiggle sign before Q and the little wiggle sign before P. It means if it is not, then this is not. If I disprove this, I've automatically refuted P. Because if this can't be true, if this Q can't be true, then P can't be true. Because P always implies it. So, if, if it isn't there, then P must be false. Now, watch how this applies. Notice the sentence. For, you see where, read down about three, four, five lines where I say first. The neutrality theory denies that God could have any fundamental role in structuring the universe. Here's what the argument is. Here's our argument from Genesis. If God is there as creator, then... He is important for every subject. Now think about that minute. Let's, let's think about that logic. If God is who the Bible says He is, has He not structured the universe His way? Does the universe not reflect His character and His being? Then isn't God important for every subject? Okay. Now, the, what does the neutrality theory start with? Somebody believes in the neutrality theory. What are they trying to say? They're trying to say, oh, Math is math, whether or not God exists. History is history, whether or not God exists. Uh, English literature is literature, whether or not God exists. But if that's so, then you've already, by implication, denied that the God of the Bible can exist. Because if God, if God did exist, He would be important for all these subjects. You're saying He's not important for the subject because you say the subjects don't change, whether or not He's there. But the moment you've said that, you've denied the existence of God. So the neutrality theory, ironically, is not neutral. The neutrality theory itself denies the existence of God. It's not just being neutral. It's actually an affirmative denial of the existence of God. Notice the second sentence here. The second thing it does. It insists that each object in the universe does not bear testimony to him. Otherwise, he would be present in every subject. And then the third thing. And this is most insidious. The neutrality theory, and it should be, I left out a little thing here, and I noticed, after it says, it elevates, if you can write in there and pencil in it, above God. Just write in the words above God, after the verb elevates. Third, it elevates above God an ethical standard that justifies ignoring His presence. We ought to learn the subject this way. 
The moment I say I ought to do something, I've just made a moral judgment. Just made a moral judgment. And if I am saying that I ought to teach in such a way that I ignore God, have I not said that my ethical standard is here and God, if he's existing, floating around somewhere, he's down here? Uh, that doesn't look too neutral to me. So, what are we saying in conclusion here? What we're saying is that there ain't no such thing as neutrality. Impossible. All the best we can hope for is a dialogue of two conflicting viewpoints. But we cannot buy into the existence of a neutral zone. The neutral zone itself denies and undercuts Scripture. And this is why later on you'll see why things are going to be structured the way they are. All right, now for next time, the, today we've just been introductory. Next week we're going to go into an extensive thing. If you'll take out your handouts a moment, I want to show you what we're going to do. And page six, or page seven rather, you'll see a long text in there. What I'm anxious for you to do, we talked about context and language and so on. What, we're, what we want you to do is we want you to read Genesis in context. Now, what better way can we have of reading Genesis in context than to read another book, sort of like Genesis, written by pagans, uninspired by the Holy Spirit? Now, wouldn't that be a nice control experiment? If you could take two people living in Moses' day, here's Moses and all the Jews, inspired of the Holy Spirit, Genesis is compiled and written, probably from records handed down from Adam and Noah. Okay? There's the Bible. Now over here we're going to take a sample of what the surrounding people believed at that time in history. And that's what this is all about. I want you to read that text carefully. I want you to pencil it all up with observations. Go through that text with your Bible open to Genesis. So, on one side, you've got Genesis 1. You read Genesis 1. On the other side, you read Enuma Elish, which is the title of this document, and then read Genesis. Then read Enuma Elish. Then read Genesis. Then read Enuma Elish. Then read Genesis. And find out the parallels. There are some similarities. Circle those similarities, just as an observation exercise. But then I want you to go back a second time, do a second pass, and look at all the differences. Now, after you get done this, and we discuss it, I hope that this will show you renewed respect for how the Holy Spirit controls sovereignly in history corrupt man. Because what you're looking at here is what happens when the Holy Spirit did not restrain a corrupt mentality. So we're going to take the incorruption next to the corruption. And we're going to have a dramatic contrast between pagan literature and the Bible. And out of that, we're going to discover... There are principles, because just as we go to Genesis and we say Genesis teaches us certain things about God, and we draw conclusions out of the Genesis text, after you go through this, I want you to do the same thing. Pretend that's your Bible for a minute. I want you to start drawing conclusions out of that text. Then we're going to take the conclusions of Scripture and the conclusions of the pagan text, put them together and say, hey, look at this. Modern paganism does the same thing. Now, here's the irony. You go to school and they tell you, oh, you've got this ancient book. Ancient book here. Full of old ancient beliefs. But isn't it funny that when I compare this book of ancient beliefs with the pagan book of ancient beliefs, I come out with a sense of differences that I observe modern pagans still believe. Modern cosmic evolution believes the same premises and the same central propositions that Enuma Elish does. So now who's related to the ancient books? Now who's related to the ancient texts? We're going to make that flypaper stick to the other guy's feet. See? We're going to look at how God teaches his truth and why there's an insidious spiritual power behind the pagan mind that wants to twist, put a twist, on Genesis. Always the same twist. And we want to get a handle as spiritual-led people. We want to get a handle about why is it that there's always the same twist that happens in the pagan mind. It's, it's tied in to our walk with the Lord. 
and we want to demonstrate that. So what we've done tonight in summary is we talked about basically the preconditions of truth and knowledge. And every man has to have an ultimate set of presuppositions to supply those preconditions. I can't speak, I can't think, I can't do without the universe being structured in a stable way that allows me to think about it and I've got to learn from context all the way out to eternity uh, for the big meaning. Everybody has that. No one is neutral. We all bring those preconditions to the table. Now, the next week we're going to discuss it, the difference in those preconditions. What supplies the precondition on the Bible standpoint? What supplies the precondition of knowledge on the pagan view? And we're going to get into the structures of these things as we go deeper into the Genesis text. Father, thank you for our time tonight. And we pray that you would guide us as we seek to make these practical in our lives. And we know that you are a great God, an incomprehensible God. And we thank you that you remind us of this. And that you remind us to stay humble and to submit to your revelation. May your Holy Spirit, who has preserved this text down through history, inspire us to dig into the treasures of it to feed our hearts and to make us even greater and bigger worshipers of you because you are such a great and big God. In Christ's name, amen.